Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. It's so great to be with all of you. We're going through the Gospel of Mark. We're going through the Gospel of St. Mark. Uh, the subtitle that I have is The Lion Roars. And boy, does he. We've seen already so many ways in which this message just comes through so boldly. You may recall that we talked about what I refer to, or the Catechism refers to, as the three R's. These are found in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, beginning in paragraph 516, 516, 17, and 18. Three R's are revelation, redemption, recapitulation. These are on your outline from last week, so I'm not going to go back and rehash those, but we're going to dive in back into our um, examination of St. Mark, using these three R's as a mode of going deeper into the scriptures. What I love about these, these three points is you can go into passage after passage, not just in St. Mark, but in all four of the Gospels, and use them as a starting point for your own deeper prayer and study. And if you were here last week, you know exactly what I mean. If you're jumping in new, you're going to get the hang of this pretty quickly. You'll see that they're, they're very straightforward, but they're very, very deep at the same time. All right, well, on page seven, We've moved into a new phase from the prologue of Mark's gospel into Jesus's public ministry. You see, it says in bold near the top of the page, Jesus's public ministry, Mark 1, verse 16 through Mark 8, 30. What I want to do is at least walk through uh, a number of these passages. We may not get to all of them, but I want to continue to show you how this works so that you can do it on your own. And I picked a great one for us to start with. Um, it's from Mark chapter 2, so open up your Bibles. Literally, when you're doing study at the Institute, as Deacon said, you have to have a Bible with you because the more you use it, and I mean physically, right, um, the more you'll get accustomed to, to um, using the Scriptures and moving around in the Scriptures. So let's open up to Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, and let's look at this passage from um, Mark 2, verse 23 through 28. It's often called the Sabbath controversy, and I'm going to read it for us from the RSV. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck ears of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, in other words, the temple, when Abiathar was high priest and ate the bread of the presence? which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, that's our starting point. Now, on page 7, you'll see, as we've been doing last week and will continue to do, just a few sentences of exegesis, of explanation, according to these three R's. So we want to try to learn and attune ourselves to hearing God's word and understanding what's being revealed, what truth, divine truth, is being revealed, how a particular passage is redemptive, and how Jesus, the new Adam, 
is restoring or recapitulating all things. That's the basics of the three R's if you're new to this. So let's look at the first R, which is revelation. Here we're simply asking about a passage. What is the supernatural truth that is being revealed? I was actually just talking about uh, this idea of revelation with my students at Mount St. Mary's today. And one of them raised his hand. He said, um, well, by revelation, don't you mean like just like the main idea of the passage? I said, no. Main idea may work for Shakespeare, for poetry, for literature, but we're talking about God's holy and inspired word. And as Pope Benedict taught us, God speaks to us in his word. So we're not simply asking the basic question, what's the main idea? We're asking, what is God revealing to us? What truth or truths is he revealing to us in this passage? So let's take a look at the outline. I suggest what's being revealed is that our Lord Jesus Christ is a priest, a priest like David, and also therefore a priest like Melchizedek, who's this mysterious priestly figure in the book of Genesis chapter 14. Now, depending upon what translation, what Catholic Bible you're using, I also want to clarify a term that I read from this passage so that we can better understand it. The term or phrase is bread of the presence. Now, why I want to clarify it is some Bibles may actually have a less helpful translation. Some may have uh, showbread, S-H-O-W-B-R-E-A-D, and that doesn't really help us a lot. What, what does that mean? The better and proper translation is bread of the presence. And I want to give you, as I would if I was with you in Virginia, a little Hebrew. Bread of the presence, in English, comes from two two Hebrew words, and I'm going to spell them for you so we can all absorb them. The first one is lachem, L-E-H-E-M, lachem, say it with me, lachem. Uh, and the second word is panim, P-A-N-I-M, panim, lachem panim. And literally, lachem panim means bread of the presence or bread of the face, presence as in one's countenance. When you gaze at someone, you gaze at their presence. This holy bread was bread that was reserved for priests. It was temple bread. And in fact, in the temple, there was a small place, bakery as it were, where priests and Levites would bake this holy bread. And then it was one of the objects that was inside the holy place. In other words, just outside the Holy of Holies in the sacred Jerusalem temple. And what made this bread so special was that it was reserved for the priests to consume, and they were able to consume it, and here's the connection, on the Sabbath. Then new bread would be baked and the would be baked and put in on the golden table, right next to the menorah, which was a symbol of the tree of life. So it's very, very symbolic bread. And Jesus talks about how David went into the holy place and those with him and ate this mysterious bread. Now, what I'm suggesting is this passage in Mark's gospel, when we rightly understand it, reveals Jesus's priestly character. Now, in order to unpack this a bit more, we've got to go back to the Old Testament. Always the best place to begin, really, when we're studying the gospel. So turn back with me, open your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 21. 1 Samuel chapter 21, I think there's a typo, it says 1 Samuel, I think 1, it should be 21, 1 Samuel chapter 21, 
and take a look with me at um, chapter 21 of 1 Samuel. Here, David comes with his men to the priest, the high priest, in Jerusalem, and look at verse 6. Here, David says, or it says, the priest gave him the holy bread, the bread of the presence, for there was no bread but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away, as I said, on the Sabbath. Now, David and his men were hungry. But what's surprising in 1 Samuel is that the high priest allows David to consume this bread. As I said, um, in the book of Exodus, as well as Leviticus, there are instructions about baking the bread and presenting it as holy bread to the Lord to be consumed by priests. So the question we need to ask ourselves is why is David allowed to consume this bread? And the shorter answer is because the Holy Scripture is revealing something of David's priestly character. Now, David was not technically a priest. When I say technically, I mean in the Levitical sense. Those of you who took the Old Testament course uh, last year, or those who've been studying along in the Institute, know that David was of the tribe of Judah. And that would have disqualified him to be a priest. He needed to be a descendant of Aaron and a Levite, which he wasn't. But when we put this passage together with two other passages, one in Genesis and one in the Psalms, we begin to see the larger picture coming together. Um, I'm not going to ask you to turn to the passage in Genesis, but I bet you already know it. It's in Genesis 14. It's in your notes, and you can look it up later. That's where this mysterious priest, Melchizedek, comes out and offers bread and wine to Abraham's God. Okay, so this early priestly figure mentioned in the book of Genesis also comes back in in Psalm 110. You're probably already familiar with this psalm as well, because again, as I keep saying, you're really wonderful Bible students. So let's turn to Psalm 110, and we're going to come back around quickly to St. Mark. Psalm 110 says this, and it's a psalm of David, right? That's important. And it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, people ask me sometimes, well, there's two lords here. What, what, who's who? Okay. Well, there's only one Lord God, and that's the, the Lord in the beginning of that verse. But then you see there's a small lowercase l. That's Lord as in master or servant or king. That's David, right? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So David as God's anointed king is in this symbolic way, seated at God's right hand. And the Lord says, the Lord sends forth from Zion, that is Jerusalem, the temple, your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your foes, your people will offer themselves freely on the day you lead your host upon the holy mountains. From the womb of the morning, like dew, your youth will come to you. And then here's this key phrase in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, David, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This primordial, non-Levitical, mysterious priest king we first met back in Genesis 14. Okay, so let's step back and and put it all together. 
David and his men go into the temple, and apparently by divine revelation, by the Holy Spirit, the high priest is able to reach a conclusion that David is not only not disqualified to eat the bread, but he's more than qualified to eat the bread because he's not only a king, he's not only a prophet, he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Come back to Mark with me. Let's go back to Mark chapter 2 and again contemplate our passage. Okay, Jesus puts himself in the passage into the position of David. Now, what were his disciples doing that stirred up this whole controversy that the Pharisees got their attention? Look at the passage again. They were plucking ears of grain. They were hungry, just as David and his men were hungry. Okay, here's the connection. If David is the priestly figure, and his men with him are grafted into, you might say, David's priesthood, and able to eat this priestly bread with him, then how are we to see Jesus Christ other than a priest, and not only him, but his disciples, the apostles, like David's men, as priestly figures who are qualified to eat this mysterious bread? That's the connection. So it's an amazing passage because it sounds like, once again, Jesus is just defying the authorities and he's doing as he wishes because he's the son of God. And in some sense, that's, that's the case. But it's much more precise and much more symbolic. The connections take us back to Genesis, back to the Psalms, and back to the book of 1 Samuel to reveal in a very cryptic but also very clear way Jesus' priestly identity. Now, you may be saying, well, that, that's pretty cool, but I, I couldn't have figured that out on my own. Well, maybe, maybe not. The first thing that you need that I want to advocate for is a reference Bible. I know you all have Catholic Bibles. You better have Catholic Bibles. But do you have a Bible with good, a study Bible with references? Uh, because if you do, great. If you don't, at some point or another, see if you can buy one, pick one up, like the Ignatius Study Bible, for example. Because the reference Bible would point you back to Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and then also 1 Samuel 21, where you can read those passages on your own, and hopefully it would begin to gel. Okay, so lots to think about there, and it's obviously a very Eucharistically uh, saturated passage in terms of where Jesus' ministry is going to, to go to, right? To the upper room and to the cross. So there's a lot here, I think, that's being revealed supernaturally. But there's more. Let's talk about redemption. Remember, the Catechism says that every passage of the Gospels shows something of Christ's redemption at work in our lives. In other words, if we think of redemption solely as the moment when Jesus is crucified on the cross, the Catechism wants to say, Yes, but there's more. Yes, we always gaze at Christ on the cross, but the mystery of the cross is like a light that shines back through the rest of the gospel and illuminates the incarnation, uh, Jesus' hidden life, his early ministry, his miracles, exorcisms, teachings, parables, all of it, so that every scene we can come across has some dimension of redemption within it.
what is the redemption that's being shown to us in this passage? Well, if Jesus is our high priest who offers us heavenly bread, and on in the last part of this passage says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, and that um, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man, we get clarity on what it means to be a child of God, to enter into Jesus's rest. As it says uh, on our outline, we're talking about not physical rest, bodily rest, but the rest for our souls. It is his priestly actions, his priestly actions in providing us his body and blood, which invites us into this eternal rest that we experience, not just in eternity, but right here and right now, and whenever we celebrate the sacred liturgy. Catechism has something nice to add here, so I've included it. From paragraph 2175 in the Catechism, and by the way, if you have your Catechism, you should be opening up these passages as well, just as I have mine with me right here always when I'm teaching. But the Catechism says, In Christ's Passover, Sunday fulfills the spiritual truth of the Jewish Sabbath and announces man's eternal rest in God for worship under the law prepared for the mystery of Christ. That's what the Old Testament is, folks, right? It's a preparation and an advance towards Jesus Christ. And what is done there prefigured some aspect of Christ and Christ's life. One last point before we move to another passage, and I'm hoping you can see that when you use these three R's as a starting point, it can go very deep, plunge you very deep into um, a, a very deep experience of God's Word. The last one, got to scratch a little bit harder here, right? Recapitulation. So the question we're asking is, how does St. Mark in this passage show us the renewing Christ, the restoring Christ, the Christ that wants to return us to our original vocation that is to be made in the image of likeness of God, Okay, and let's ask the question about this passage. Well, once again, I think it's in that saying that Jesus proclaims to the Pharisees, to his disciples, and to all of us, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, we have to ask ourselves to properly understand this. What was the purpose of the Sabbath, the original Sabbath? Not talking about keeping the Sabbath, but the original Sabbath. Well, turn back with me to Genesis chapter 2. And in just a moment, we're going to read from the Holy Scripture in Genesis chapter 2. And here's what it says in chapter 2, verse 1 and following. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts with them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work which he had done and rested on the seventh day from all of his work, which he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, the Sabbath, and hallowed it, made it holy. Because on it, God rests from all of his work, which he had done in creation. Now, there's much I could say about the Sabbath, but let me summarize it this way. If you have thought of that passage as God kind of catching some Z's, you know, resting, from all of his busyness, I need to ask you to think again. Um, What the Sabbath represents is the climax of creation. 
The analogy I often use is a master artist, right? God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, bring about the creation. And like a master artist, when it's brought to perfection, then there's no more work to do, right? An artist at one point realizes it's been brought to its fullness, and what does he do? He steps back from its work and enjoys it, takes pleasure in it. And it brings him peace, just as it brings uh, everyone peace who participates in that work of art. And the same is true in our own lives, right? But we must choose to participate in that Sabbath rest of God. How do we do it? Well, the first and foremost way is through our sacred liturgy, right? Are we preparing ourselves, quieting ourselves, coming to Mass or liturgy a few minutes early so that we can pray, silence ourselves, silence our phones, silence our, 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 you know, our beating hearts, and just quiet ourselves to enter into the sacred mysteries? Also, are we taking time on a daily basis to contemplate the peace that awaits us, that is right before us always, right? In God's word and in moments where we can convey our love for the Blessed Trinity simply by praying. What about Eucharistic adoration, taking an hour, at least an hour a week, or at least on a regular basis, where we could go and kneel before the Blessed Sacrament and contemplate that lasting eternal peace that is ours if we claim it. If we understand that our Lord and God has created us to experience this peace and to embrace it and step into it. Okay, so stepping back, right, just in one little passage here, revelation, redemption, recapitulation. Um, hopefully we've had, we've got a new fresh look at what probably is a very familiar passage to us. Let's move on and talk about another passage. Let's move on to Mark chapter 3. And let's talk about Jesus calling the 12. So this is found in Mark 3, and it is verse 13 through 19. So I'll give you just a moment to turn there. Mark chapter 3, verse 13. And he went into the hills and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 to be with him and to be sent out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Now we get the names, right? Of course, Peter's first, Simon, whom he surnamed Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, who he surnamed Boerginese, that is, sons of thunder. Gotta love that nickname. Um, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, and I always love that it's always got this little poke in there, right, to remind us, who betrayed him. But he's still one of the 12 at this point. Okay, so there's um, our passage. Now, let's try to contemplate the three R's and understand what we can from the Catechism's wisdom in giving, pointing us towards these three R's. Okay, the first one is revelation. So our question to ask ourselves is, Lord, what is the supernatural truth that you want us to see? Well, as it says on our outline, Jesus' mission begins with the 12 apostles, foremostly Peter and the named historical persons that are here. 
Christianity is rooted in historic persons and realities, and that's something we need to remember. The second point is these were Jesus' own eyewitnesses and models of discipleship. If we want to understand the whole nature and challenge of discipleship, we should look no further than back to the very beginnings of Jesus' ministry with the Twelve, with Peter, James, and John, Andrew, and all the others. Okay? So that's the revelation. Now, I think there's other points of revelation, other truths in here, right? But let's move on to the next point. Redemption. And you say, well, this is just a list of the apostles. So that's important, but how is this redemptive? Well, here's my proposal. Because it says they were given, in verse 15, authority. Authority. Christ's authority to cast out demons and to heal. And we see that healing ministry of the apostles right from the very beginning of Pentecost. All you have to do is open up to Acts chapter 2 and begin reading a few chapters, and you'll see that authoritative ministry that Jesus gave, as Mark's pointing out to right here in the gospel. The last one, I think, is the one I really want to call your attention to. That's recapitulation. In other words, what is Jesus symbolically renewing, restoring, calling to mind from the Old Testament and then raising it up to an entirely new level of reality? That's recapitulation, right? Well, um, go back with me to um, the book of Exodus. And I want you to turn there to Exodus chapter 24. I want to show you something really remarkable tonight. We all know that the, after the deliverance from Egypt by Moses' hand, right? He leads them through the Red Sea. And they end up at Mount Sinai where the Lord God calls Moses up the mountain to give him the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. But did you know that the Twelve were also present in a particular way at that crucial covenantal scene. They were. Take a look at, math, uh, at Exodus chapter 24. And we read a few verses here. First, it says in verse 24, And God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord. And then it says, You and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, and worship afar off. The first question to answer is, who are these figures? Who is Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu? Well, I don't know who Aaron is, right? The brother of Moses and the first high priest in Scripture. Nadab and Abihu are his own sons, and those that the priesthood will pass to right after Aaron, okay? So we have Moses, the one, and now we have the three. Are you seeing this pattern? We also have the 70, the 70 elders who play a role here. Well, how do we compare that with the Gospels, right? We've got the three, which are Peter, James, and John. We've got the 70, right? And now in just a moment, we're going to see the 12. Let's read on. Verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words and all of the Lord and all the ordinances. And the people answered with one voice, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do which I like to snidely say, sure you will. <laughs> sure you will. But they mean well, right? All right. 
And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and here it comes, 12 pillars. 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Moses rose early, built an altar, and that altar had 12 pillars, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel, likely priests, who offered burnt offerings and sacrifices, sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood and threw it on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of all the people and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took blood and threw it upon the people and said, here it comes, behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you and in accordance with all these words. Let me read on just a couple more sentences. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 went up, and they saw the God of Israel. It says they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heavens for clearness. This is as if they're in a heavenly reality, right? And they beheld God, and they ate and drank. They beheld God, and they ate and drank. Well, before we come back around to, uh, to Mark, turn with me just for a moment to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 22. In the institution of the Holy Eucharist, let's go right into the heart of it, verse 20, Luke 22, verse 20, and Jesus Christ takes the chalice, and after supper says, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. We can see in Luke's gospel and in the calling of the 12 in Mark's gospel, the significance of these biblical numbers. They're not happenstance, right? The three, Peter, James, and John, the 70, sending out the 70, the 70 elders, and especially the 12. In short, Mark is telling us, all the evangelists are telling us, that Jesus is recapitulating Israel. A new Israel, not born of disobedience and sin and death, but born of obedience and trust and life. What I want to do is look at just one more passage from the first week's outline, and then turn to the second half of the gospel and really move us more into the passion, because I don't want to in any way neglect that. But the passage I chose for us to look at is in Mark chapter 5. It's one of the most, I think, most vivid and detailed and spectacular exorcisms in all four Gospels. Um, it's, it's actually 19 verses. I'm not going to read all of it. I'm going to presume some knowledge here, but I want to make sure we're all looking at it. Okay, that will help. So open up to Mark chapter 5. It's verse 1 through 19. Mark 5, 1 through 19, it begins this way. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when they had come out of the boat, there met him a man of the tombs. A man of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. Okay? Who lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, even with the chain. For he had been often bound with fetters and chains, but the chains and fetters he broke 
wrenched apart into pieces and no one had the strength to subdue him. It's a very frightening scene, but also very, very sad, right? We have to remember this, this is a man who is oppressed or possessed by Satan. Uh, and in that sense, he, like all of us in one deeper sense, right, are afflicted by the enemy. But it's what Jesus does here that is so powerful and so insightful for all of us. So let's take a look at the outline. It's on page eight. Jesus heals the garrisoned demoniac. So I quickly want to make three points, and I am going to actually use the board here. The first point we are asking ourselves with the catechism is, what is the supernatural truth, Lord, that you want us to see? And I think one of the main ones would be clearly that Jesus Christ has power not only over the demons that possess and oppress this man, but over Satan himself, who, of course, lurks behind, uh, behind this. But there's a very interesting wordplay that I want to show you. So let me write this on the board, and then we'll talk about it. And it is, emoi tu kai soy. And I'm going to make sure that you can see it here and get out of the way a little bit. You see that? Emoi tu kai soy, if you would say it with me. Emoi tu kai soy. E-M-O-I-T-O-U-K-A-I-S-O-I. Okay? Very simple little phrase in Greek, but it's also very fascinating. What it literally means is what is between you and me, right? And if you look at the passage, we can find it here, right in the midst of this, uh, of this scene, right, where the demon confronts him through the man speaking and says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Now, it is interesting to me that he, he understands who Jesus is, but he is actually confronting Jesus's divine power. And here's, here's the key. This phrase in Greek, emoi tu kai soi, is found in another very important scene in John's gospel that I know of. It's the only other place that that phrase appears. Uh, turn with me to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. And let's look quickly at the wedding feast at Cana scene. The wine fails. We all know the scene, right? Mary says, being the beautiful instigator that she is, they have no more wine. They have no wine. And Jesus says to her, O woman, what have you to do with me? Emoi tu kai soy. Now here's the difference between the two people who say it. The person who says this expression, emoi tu kai soy, what have you to do with me? Is the person who is claiming authority. It's the person who has the prerogative in the relationship. So let's say that... Um, a Roman general says to one of his soldiers, uh, what have you to do with me? He may be using it in the sense of giving that man some instruction. Um, if a father said it to a son or daughter, emoi tu kai soy, you better, you, you know, if you're the kid, you better get your ducks in a row. Maybe your dad's not happy that you didn't clean your room or finish the chores or something else. It's the person who's in position of authority has the right to say it, to question the other person, the other person is to be subservient, humble, and offer a dutiful response. So when Jesus says it to Mary in 
the wedding feast at Cana, I think it's John's way of showing us his divine authority as the divine son who's meeting the woman, his mother, right, and expressing his divine authority. He's not in any way insulting her, but he is showing the divine authority that he indeed has. However, in this scene, it is not Jesus who says it to the man, but the man, the demon-possessed man, who says it to him. In other words, Satan and the dark forces of this world will often claim authority that they do not have. And I think that is something worth, worth contemplating tonight. But as we'll see in the passage, it are the actions that matter. It is Jesus' word and Jesus' deeds that ultimately show who has the power in this relationship. That's the first point. The second point is, of course, Jesus casts the demon out of the man, right? Sends them into the swine. They go down the hill. They plunge into the sea in a spectacular ending to that exorcism story. After the man is healed, what does Jesus say to the man? Look at verse 19 with me. The man pleads to follow Jesus, but he refused and said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And so this is, I put this under the point of redemption to remind us that redemption is not, and we shouldn't think as Catholics of redemption as simply our heavenly home that awaits us, right? Redemption begins here and now in this life. It's available to us today. It began in earnest at our baptism. It continues as we pursue a vigorous, robust life with God through the sacramental economy, through confession, through uh, frequent um, reception of the Holy Eucharist, but also through prayer and scripture and community and other means of, of sacrifice, right? Through all those ways, our souls, our bodies are being redeemed. So I think it's amazing that Jesus sends him home as part of his redemption. And I'm just speculating here, perhaps the redemption of that broken community. Because if this man was uh, likely an outcast, there probably was a lot of other dysfunction going on within that community. He goes back as a witness to what Jesus has done, as a sign of redemption. And as a, remember, a healing to, to that family. This family had ostracized him. His friends had ostracized him. They couldn't handle what, this evil. Jesus sends him back as a light and as a witness. There is a lot of application here, folks. To what extent do we return to those that we knew, that we need to be a witness to in our homes, in our workplaces, bringing, even if it's simply a smile, right? Bringing a message of hope, of joy, uh, of trust, of confidence in our Lord Jesus Christ. The last point, recapitulation, is also really interesting. Jesus casts the unholy out. And I believe he is recapitulating what Adam should have done and what Israel was called to do. Let me quickly explain. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, right? The serpent enters into the Garden of Eden and speaks to the woman and interrogates her. She unfortunately succumbs to that temptation, but also through her own free will. Let's be clear about that, right? But the question is, where is Adam in that initial conversation? I always say, if he's there, he's got tape over his mouth because he says, nada. He doesn't say anything. 
There are some extra biblical texts, like uh, the book of Jubilees, an early um, extra biblical text that says Adam was off in another part of the garden. And it says the angels were busy worshiping God and Eve was left unattended. Well, that's, that's a bit of a, um, maybe eisegesis there, but it's an interesting one. But certainly we can say that Adam appears to be delinquent in his duties. You may remember, especially if you studied Genesis at the Institute, that Eden is designed as a proto-temple, as the holy place of the temple. And Adam, as a high priest, was called to keep the holy in and the unholy out, just as any priest would have done in the Jerusalem temple in its life in the latter uh, days of the Old Testament and New Testament times. He was delinquent in that, uh, in that duty, and for that reason... And for his own sin, God casts him out. Ironically, the one who is to cast out the darkness, he is the one who was cast out. Okay? In a similar way, Israel was called to separate herself so that they could be tutored by God, mentored by God, and draw all people to Jerusalem. They were called to refrain from unholiness. They were called to cast out darkness, out of the temple, out of the holy place, and out of their society. Did they do so? Well, it's a very mixed bag, but in many ways we can say it was, in a human sense, a failed project. The temple was destroyed. Israel was called out into exile. Once again, like Adam, they're taken out of paradise and placed outside. That's the legacy, folks, of Adam that's the legacy, sadly, of Israel. And in a broader sense, that is the legacy of humanity. It's going on today when children are being cast out of their own homes through the heartbreak and heartache of divorce and all sorts of other um, maladies we see in our society. You don't even have to look at the biblical story, just look at our society. So Jesus is casting out the darkness out of this man, but telling the man to go home I think has deep ramifications for how we understand Jesus as the new Adam, who is bringing about a new creation. Look at Revelation, the book of Revelation, where Jesus says, Behold, I make all things new. That's a statement of recapitulation. That's a statement to ponder. Honestly, that's a statement to ponder in a holy hour. When we're before the Lord's own face, before his own presence, as it were, contemplating how we too can grow in holiness. What do we need to cast out? What do we need to let go of? What do we need to draw near? How are we to train and discipline ourselves, our bodies, our minds, and most of all, our spirits, to recognize holiness and also to recognize unholiness and to respond accordingly? This passage is so rich, and I was grateful to lead a group of seminarians to the very hill just a few weeks ago where we commemorated the very actions where Jesus redeemed this man's life. All right, with that in mind, we've got about 15, 20 minutes left. Let's focus our attention to the high point of Mark's gospel, the high point of all the gospels, the passion, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to turn... Uh, to a very important scene just before we come to the Passion, and that's the Transfiguration, because the Transfiguration is one of those key scenes that illuminates and shines a bright light on the very identity of Jesus Christ and prepares his disciples, 
and prepares us for seeing uh, the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, pardon the expression, in a whole new light. So let's look at Mark chapter, um, let's look at Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 8, and a key turning point um, in, in the gospel here is the scene of the transfiguration. This scene is a critical turning point, right, where Jesus unveils his true divine origins and true divine nature to his disciples. There are three things to, I think, to really see about the transfiguration scene, and it's also given, and you have those references in Matthew 16, also in Luke's Gospel. Let's just stay here and talk about the three R's. Firstly, what is being revealed? Well, certainly, and it's pretty straightforward, right? We can say Jesus reveals his divine majesty and glory to his disciples. Hold the finger at Mark 8 and go back with me to John chapter 2, the beginning of Jesus' ministry in John's gospel. And I want to ask you a question. What was the point of the wedding feast at Cana? What was the real point? For that, you have to look at verse 11. Chapter 2 of John's gospel, verse 11. John tells us, he says, This was the first sign Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. Here it comes. And he manifested or revealed right, his glory. His doxa is the word in Greek. D-O-X-A. His glory. And his disciples believed in him. Now, some of your Bible translations may actually have um, began to reveal his glory. And that, that's actually quite correct, right? So it's the beginning. It's not the full revelation of his glory. The full revelation is, of course, when he's lifted up high on the cross. Um, so what is the transfiguration then but a deeper unveiling of the glory that's revealed from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, right, with his baptism, his first signs, all the way through to his ascension. That's the first point. Um, and there's a nice quote here from the Catechism, paragraph 556. It's on page one of your outline, week two. It says, on the threshold of the public life, the baptism, on the threshold of the Passover, the transfiguration. See what the Catechism is doing? It's putting in parallel those two very crucial scenes. The baptism, right on the verge of his public life, the transfiguration right on the verge of his passion. So you can see how the catechism wants to think about these two scenes as the beginning point of the public ministry and the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first point. Much to be revealed here, literally. What about redemption? Well, we can put it this way. How does this particular experience for Peter, James, and John, what does it do for them? Catechism, again, helps us. It prepares Jesus' disciples for readying them, stealing them, for his crucifixion. It prepares them and prepares us to look at. We're coming up sooner than you think, right, to the Easter season. This is a great scene, honestly, to contemplate again and again over these next few weeks before we move properly into Lent. Take some time, spend some time praying through with, in Lectio Divina, 
the transfiguration scene in any one of the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. It also gives us that deeper hope for our own resurrection as we look at the transfigured Lord on that holy mountain. The last one is the one I really want to focus on, and it's really one I think is amazing. The recapitulation here in this scene is remarkable. People say, why were Moses and Elijah the ones who were called up, summoned up, along with our Lord Jesus Christ and the three apostles? There's various answers. I think a common and true answer is they represent the law and the prophets. Moses, the law, the great lawgiver, um, and Elijah, the great prophet, right? There's something else, I think, that's deeper that takes us into the mystery of recapitulation. And that is that those two figures, Moses and Elijah, in various ways in Scripture, longed to see God. We already read a passage earlier in um, the first hour, right, where Moses and the others went up and they ate and drank and they beheld God. Here's another passage. Turn with me to Exodus 33. Doing a lot in the Old Testament here tonight, I know. But turn back to me with, uh, with me to Exodus 33. It's a very crucial point in the story of Israel, where just after the golden calf apostasy, it seems as though God is just on the border whether he's going to go with Israel or not. And it's Moses who has to lay down his life, so to speak, and say, Lord, if you don't go with us, there's no point in going on, right? Okay, and so that's the scene. Now look with me at Exodus 33. Moses says in verse 15, if thy presence will not go with me, do not carry us up from here. Then the Lord responds in kind, okay, we're going to go on together. And verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing you have spoken, I will do. And Moses responds almost excitedly, right? Lord, I pray, show me thy doxa, thy glory. That's Moses' heart, right? It's the heart of every saint. We want to see the beatific vision. We want to see God face to face. That's a great prayer. It's just that it's not time for God to answer it right here uh, in Exodus 33. But wait. God says, you cannot see my face. No one shall see me and live. Um, But let's just add a wrinkle in. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 34. That's the end of the Pentateuch. Um, it starts off by saying Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, right? This is preparing for the scene of Moses' death, right? He looks across. He's not going to go in. Here's his legacy, right? Moses is 120 years old. His eye was not dim. His natural force unabated. means he was still, you know, rock hard at 120, right? God bless him. But now look with me at verse 10. Are you with me? Deuteronomy 34, verse 10. Here's the final sentence of the Pentateuch. There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. I don't know about you, but that raises a question, right? Exodus said um, he longed to see God and didn't in Exodus 33, but Deuteronomy seems to suggest that he did see God face to face. Which is it? Okay, now let's set Moses aside, and uh, before we come to um, 
to uh, Elijah. Let's talk just for a minute about another Old Testament character who longed to see God face to face, and that's Jacob. For him, we have to go back to Genesis. And I know you're thinking, my gosh, Dr. Smith, you're more in the Old Testament than you are in Mark tonight. That's okay. Um, I'll take my hits on that one. Let's go to Genesis chapter 32. And in Genesis chapter 32, there's this great scene in Jacob's life where he wrestles with a man at night. That man turns out to be the angel of the Lord, right? He has a conversation with this angel. His name is changed from Jacob to Israel because you struggled with God. I'm in Genesis 32 at the very end of the chapter. And then it says the angel blessed God, uh, sorry, blessed Jacob. And in verse 30, Jacob responds by renaming the place. Very significant when a name is changed, right? Jacob's own name changes from Jacob to Israel. But now it says he renamed the place Peniel, P-E-N-I-E-L. Penim, we learned earlier, right? Laham Panim, you know what, what it means now. It means face, right? Panim means face, and El is the, one of the terms for God. He renamed the place the face of God. For I have seen God, here it is again, face to face. Now, if we were to study Elijah's life, we wouldn't see him literally asking to see God face to face or that he says he saw God face to face. But if you were to look at uh, 1 Kings chapter um, 19, in that passage, he comes out to the very front of the cave, right? After longing to hear God and see God, he does not see God in the earthquake or in the great rushing wind or in the flaming fire, but in the still small voice. And it all but says that Elijah longed to see God face to face. Okay, so let's just step back. We've got Moses, we've got Jacob, we've also got Elijah, these three great characters who longed to see God face to face. And the question is, did they or didn't they? Well, the definitive answer comes from St. John. And for that, we're back in the New Testament, John chapter 1. John 1, in his great prologue, John says, verse 17, uh, go back to 14. John 1, 14, you there in the prologue? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Don't stop, finish the sentence. Full of grace and truth, we, John says, we the apostles, beheld his glory. We saw his glory. Glory is of the only son of the father. And then look at verse 17. John adds, the law was given through Moses. But wait a minute, John, I thought you were talking about Jesus Christ, the eternal word, the eternal logos. Why are you bringing Moses in suddenly? What's, you know, did you forget you're talking about Jesus, not Moses, right? But he brings in Moses, and then he says, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And here it is, verse 18. No one, udes in the Greek, say it with me, udes, it's a, it's a, it's a very strong negative. It means absolutely no one. And John means it. No one has ever seen God. There's the definitive answer on that debate. But God, the only Son who's in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known or revealed him. Folks, that's John's message in miniature. Only Jesus Christ was with God in the beginning. He's the one who descended to earth, right? Born of the Virgin Mary. And we beheld him. 
We saw him, we ate, we drank with him, right? Throughout his whole ministry, he's the one who's only qualified to reveal who God is. When you're looking at Jesus Christ, you're looking at God face to face. And John says, Moses didn't have that privilege. Elijah didn't. But thanks be to God, I did. And so did Peter and the rest. Okay, now with all of that in mind, come back to our outline and look again at the transfiguration and ask yourself this question. Why Moses and why Elijah? I think they're chosen, the Lord chose them very, very carefully. Yes, they represent the law and the prophets, but also these are two great figures of the Old Testament that desired to see God face to face, but that St. John says it didn't actually happen no matter what they said, right? They had a close encounter with God, right? They're taken up into a heavenly vision. They did not literally see God face to face. Only Jesus, the Son of God, has had that unique privilege, and he shares it with his apostles, who then share it with us. So Peter, James, and John are at the feet of Jesus, and these two great Old Testament patriarchs and saints, Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, encounter Jesus and see him face to face. Their prayer was answered, not maybe how they expected, not when they wanted, but through Jesus Christ, it was. Now, with that in mind, we're uh, running quickly out of time. We're going to skip over uh, a few more passages here, but I want to I turn us for sure to the upper room. So let's turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, we'll look at one more passage here. And um, then we will take some questions, okay? I think by now, from last week in this, you should have a pretty, pretty decent idea of how this, the three R's work. And I hope they will guide you in your deeper study as you go further into the mysteries of God's word. Um, one thing I should say is that the three R's, you can apply them to a small passage like the Transfiguration. You can also apply them more broadly to a section of Scripture. And that's what I want to do here, from Mark 14 through Mark 15. So we're obviously not going to read all that, but the backdrop here is the Last Supper, the trials, and the crucifixion. So let's talk for a moment about that Passover that Jesus shares with his disciples. In Mark 14, we read, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth. I like that, right? Sneakily, by stealth. And were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and to kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be a tumult among the people. Okay, and then it begins. And let's take a look and talk about the three R's with regard to um, the, the Passover itself. We can ask the question, what is the supernatural truth of Jesus' supper with his disciples in the upper room? And the short but very profound answer is, Jesus Christ is inaugurating the new Passover. It is at this key moment, the pinnacle of Jesus' life and ministry, when everything comes together, and the moment that the Lord God chooses to institute his, to unite himself to his apostles in a priestly way, and to prepare for a sacrifice, is that great old feast called Passover. When a lamb was sacrificed, its blood put on the doorpost, and offered up, right, that the Lord God would pass over those homes and spare and redeem their lives. Jesus Christ is that new Passover lamb. 
The redemption here is obviously plain for all of us to see, but do we focus on it enough? As the new and definitive Passover, there is a greater deliverance than was offered to the Israelites in the Old Testament. They were delivered out of Egypt. What are we delivered from? From a place and time? No. We're delivered from sin and death. Lastly, recapitulation. Jesus recapitulates, that is, brings up and calls to mind that original Passover, but lifts it up to an entire new reality. Listen how the catechism describes it, and we'll close with this and take some questions. By celebrating the Last Supper with his apostles in the course of the Passover meal, Jesus gave the Passover, meaning, the Passover its definitive meaning. You know, think about it. As he's instituting the Holy Eucharist, he's way off the script from what the Passover ritual was about, right? I always, I mean, it's a very profound moment, I know, but I can't help but have a little bit of sense of humor and think, looking around at the disciples, they've got to be asking each other, what the heck is he talking about? Eating my, my flesh and drinking my blood. That's, I don't recall that from the book of Exodus chapter 12. So there's a mystery here, right, that we can only contemplate the old in light of the new, in light of Jesus' life, death and resurrection. It goes on to say, Jesus is passing over to his father, right, using the language of Passover, by his death on the cross and his resurrection is the new Passover, is anticipated in the supper and celebrated in the Eucharist, on the bottom of page three, which fulfills the Jewish Passover and anticipates what it calls the final Passover, right? that which is to come, which we will celebrate in the glory of the kingdom of God, the Father Almighty. Okay, now there's a couple more passages. I'm not going to read them, but I just want you to be aware of them so you can look at them on your own. On page four is yet another scene with the drinking of Jesus' blood. And then on page five, Jesus praying in Gethsemane, and I want you to take a look at the three R's that are there. The arrest of Jesus Christ on the bottom of page five, the three R's once again. The crucifixion scene, and last but not least, the resurrection. And you can look at all the scriptures, get out your Bible, and read them for yourselves. But as we draw, begin to draw to a close, you know, obviously we haven't covered every passage in Mark, but I hope you now have a new lens through which to at least begin asking these questions. And don't be ashamed and don't be afraid to try to go into the, roll up your sleeves and do some Bible study. Have your catechism with you, right? Turn especially to that section in the catechism in the 400s where it gives us the mysteries of Christ's life. Begin to ask the good questions. Come to the Institute seeking answers and share your insights with the others that you meet, whether it's online or when you come to the Institute. And may Almighty God bless you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I think we still have five or six or seven minutes maybe, and we'd love to take some questions. I was wondering if you could go back to the, to the, uh, the book of Exodus and um, chapter 24. You had mentioned this covenant that was that was formed, and obviously the obvious foreshadowings of, of Christ and and the Eucharist are there uh, in chapter twenty four. But in verse eight, it says this is Exodus chapter twenty four, verse eight. For those who are watching online, you're more than welcome to turn there. 
chapter 24, verse 8. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. You know, for a modern reader and hearer of the, this is strange stuff. Could you give some light as to the meaning of this throwing of the blood on the people in terms of the covenant? Sure. Um, it, it, as I said earlier, it's a very um, fascinating passage. And we're used to reading, I think, the Ten Commandments simply as, as words and not as actions. But for the ancient Jewish people, they would not have understood them simply as precepts or as laws, but as actions that they were asked to participate in. Uh, the word participation is very important, not only in understanding um, Catholicism, but also for getting a handle on, uh, on Judaism. If you go back to uh, the book of Genesis and you, you look at and study um, the lives of the, the patriarchs of Adam and then later of Cain and Abel, they are asked to participate in the life of worship. You, you can go back at, at Genesis 4 and see how Cain and Abel were offering worship to the Lord. The first sacrifice that's mentioned there in Scripture is actually a lamb. It's actually right there in the Scriptures. How do we miss that? But sometimes we do. Um, there is something about uh, representation, about substitution and representation in the Scriptures from the very beginning. And by that, I mean that a life for a life, right? Our lives are so uh, clothed in dignity. We're told in Genesis 1, that we're made in the image and likeness of God. And those aren't mere words. That is an all-encompassing mystery, that we are partakers in God's divine nature. We're made for holiness. But when that holiness is broken and violated, right, there is, uh, in Scripture, a shedding of blood. And yes, it, it is the case today that it, just, it can sound also um, graphic and also bloody. Um, but maybe think of it this way, right? Um, when you see an animal in the temple that's being sacrificed, instead of just thinking blood and gore, think of the, the goodness of that animal, right? Remember, the animals that were sacrificed were not to be with blemish. This was taking treasures, real treasures that were valuable. I mean, even monetarily valuable, priceless, really. They were the very best. And then giving that over to God and saying, it belongs to you. Everything I have is yours. The shedding of blood represents life being spilled out, life being offered up. I think there's a lot of con contemplate in terms of um, self-gift, of offering our own lives, right? Uh, the New Testament, Peter says that we are to be living sacrifices. So I think Peter is aware of this. The idea of the old is in the past, but it's always there to remind us that we're to be living sacrifices. But one more point, and that is you couldn't get away from that scene without having, you might say, the stain of God on you, right? That is to say that it wasn't just an idea. You were intimately involved in it. Blood was upon you, right? You had to go home and look at it and wash it off. You were also a witness when others saw you that you were at that very scene participating in it. And I really do think that Jesus is will playing upon this scene when he's with his disciples in the upper room, when he holds the cup right before he's about to be, his blood is about to be poured out and says, behold the blood of the new covenant, right? The blood is what binds us together. Think about it, whether we're talking about 
between a man and a woman, right, who are called to a one flesh union, or we're talking about Israel and Yahweh, or we're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ and the Church of the Holy Eucharist. So sometimes we've got to think through what seems to be shocking scenes and ask the deeper meaning. And it is a really great question. I'm so glad that you brought it up tonight. I would recommend a book uh, for those that want to do a little bit further study. It's called The Lamb's Supper by Dr. Scott Hahn. A lot of you will be familiar with it. Another book that deals with this theme of blood and its importance is, um, is called um, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist by Dr. Brant Petrie, P-I-T-R-E. He's got a whole explanation of the Passover, much more than I can deal with tonight, but I think it will help you understand why the shedding of blood was necessary and how that helps us to relate to our faith today, even in um, the sacred liturgy. A great question. Wonderful, Doctor. And we're going to get into this a little bit more also on Sunday. We'll be looking at Cardinal Ratzinger's Spirit of the Liturgy in the first section where he talks about the nature of sacrifice. So looking forward to that. Um, uh, Emily, did you have, or Kristen, did you guys have a question? I know you had you'd written something in there. Go ahead. You got to make sure your, your, is your mic oh. on? There you go. Oh, um, my question was in the Gospel of Mark, is there kind of an overarching theme that he focuses on about Jesus, like his humanity or his kingship, like they kind of do in, in some of the Gospels? Yeah. Uh, well, really great question. And let me just, for the sake of everyone who's listening, I do want to mention, if you tuned in um, only this week, that last week I started out with actually seven points that every Catholic should know about the Gospels. And I'm obviously not going to repeat them here. I just want to make you aware of their presence. It's an outline number one, and it's pages one, two, uh, three, and I guess four. And in that section, I do talk about some of the particulars uh, of Mark's Gospel. And I would only say a couple things about, about Mark and his particular presentation. I think it's safe to say that what Mark seems to emphasize the most is Jesus as the Son of God. It's in the very beginning of his gospel, it's at the very end of his gospel, and all the way through all these various actions seem to kind of raise the bar for the audience to either reject that or to accept it. Another thing I would say with Mark in particular that I I've always thought of as one of Mark's uh, signatures is discipleship, right? We get a really great look at Peter, and let's remember that Mark, according to tradition, was a disciple of Peter. Remember, he's not one of the 12. In fact, Mark has the title of an apostolic man, just like St. Luke does, because they were not part of the circle of the 12. Remember that Mark's name was not in that list that we read earlier, um, nor is Luke's. Uh, their credentials are twofold, right? They had um, firsthand knowledge and um, relationship with the uh, apostles, right? That is to say, Mark was the disciple of Peter, and Luke was the um, uh, companion and friend and disciple of Paul. And those individuals had firsthand knowledge of Jesus himself, so they could investigate the stories on their own, as they certainly did, right? We should certainly believe that Mark, like Luke, took up an inquiry and set about to write in their gospel from firsthand knowledge, interviewing, talking to people. Luke tells us this himself but then also from the insights that they shared through the apostles themselves, from both uh, Peter and also from um, 
uh, from Paul with regard to Luke. But I would say that discipleship is really something to watch, especially uh, look at the first eight chapters of Mark. And again and again and again, what you're going to see in Mark's gospel is what I call the befuddledness of the disciples. And I think this is intentional on Mark's part. I'm, I'm very confident that Mark must have had conversations with Peter where Peter conveyed to them just um, the utter confusion that must have been going through their minds as they spent time with Jesus and could not figure it out on their own. Then when you come to Mark chapter 8, which is basically around the halfway point, is you have the confession of Peter, where Peter, where Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, you are the Christ, right? And then the words are added, um, flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. For that, we've got to turn to the version in Matthew 16, look it up there, but where Jesus says to him, flesh and blood is not revealed this to you. In other words, you have not, um, you've not figured this out on your own. And that, I think what, what we can put together then from Mark's uh, portrait is a sense of discipleship that occurs in stages. There's stages of growth, just like there's stages in our own life. Part of it is just spending time with Jesus. But the other part of it is that it's the divine knowledge that comes to the apostles, just like it comes to us by reading scripture, not through our own doing. And that should be actually very, very comforting to us. When I look at the apostles and I see the confusion, the misunderstandings that they have, you know, Peter wanting to stay up on the mountain, uh, Lord, let's build some booths. This should all comfort us to know that they're trying to work it out on their own, but ultimately that is not how revelation works. It comes from God, it comes through Jesus Christ, and then it reaches them and they're caught up in a mystery greater than themselves. Um, and then lastly, I would say, we didn't really talk about the resurrection tonight, all you have to do is look at Peter's threefold denial. It's such a human response, right? He's so filled with uh, confusion, despair, despair, fear. But it's after the resurrection, right, when Jesus encounters him and reinstates Peter, that he becomes the new Peter. He becomes, truly becomes the rock. He was able to assert it earlier, but it was not his own knowledge that kept him there. And so as soon as temptation came, he ascends to the man, right? He ran away from the Lord. But it's the Lord that calls and it's the Lord that restores. And I think this is a great, great message for us in Mark's gospel. So when you see the faltering disciples, take some consolation in that and try to learn, try to step into that experience and ask yourself, would I, would I do any different? Uh, maybe we would, but probably we wouldn't, right? Uh, and I think that's the beauty of Mark's gospel. It's very raw. It's very real. And it's very, very human in the sense of giving us a portrait of discipleship before and after the resurrection. It's a great question. And I'm waving at the girls. I can see you on my side screen. Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, Margaret, did you have a couple questions coming in from the... Actually, yes, we have um, Jim Cottrell, or I'm not sure if you go by James. Um, he asked in Exodus 24.10, it says, And they saw the God of Israel. And Jim asks, what is saw in this context? What does he mean by saw? Well, this is why I was trying to bring the point out earlier that um, it's a mystery because if we read the scripture at, at face value, Exodus seems to suggest that Moses and the three and the 70, that is to say the elders and then the high priestly group, right, were taken up into a kind of heavenly vision. It says, um, 
you know, there were sapphire stone. And so the image that we're getting is that they're no longer on Mount Sinai. They're now sort of in the heavenly throne room. Um, it doesn't say that, you know, they saw faith, God face to face, but yet it does say they saw him and they beheld him. But uh, here, here a principle from the catechism is very, very helpful. It's what I call the canonical principle, right? It's in uh, catechism, uh, paragraph 112, 13, and 114. You can look them up later. But it's basically, we read the scripture and make sense of it in a canonical context. What that means is that whenever we come across a, a difficulty or a question like this, before making either one assumption or the other, we should try to do our best to study as much as we can about that question. We might need to get help from Deacon Sabatino or from someone else, but we can get some answers, good commentaries. But what we would ultimately want to do is look at other scriptures as we did a little bit tonight, right? I, I pulled in John's gospel, right, where John says, no one has seen God, right? Well, if you put Exodus 24 and John 1 together on the surface, it just seems like a conflict. Who wins? But the answer isn't who wins. The answer is the Scripture is always teaching us with clarity. So I think we would have to say a deeper revelation comes to us from the New Testament that clarifies what seems obvious in Exodus 24, but which is deepened um, in terms of its... Um, true meaning by St. John, which is to say, no one has actually seen God. That's pretty right? John makes that statement. So then we come back to Exodus 24 and we say, well, they had a, as I said, close encounter with God. I think what the scripture is saying is Moses in this encounter came closer to God than words can possibly say, right? It was a very mystical and special and intimate union. But John wants to hold out that no one has seen God literally face to face. Only God, the Son, has done so. And that's why, that's why we need the apostles, by the way. In a sense, John the Apostle and the other apostles, their experience of seeing God was, was literal. Where we have to say Moses is and the others were of a spiritual sort. But St. John makes the claim that only God, the Son, was in the bosom of the Father, right, from all eternity, and encountering God in all of his glory. Moses didn't have that experience. Certainly Elijah didn't, or Jacob, or anyone else for that matter. So I, I want to answer the question by saying they didn't actually see God in a literal sense, at least according to the New Testament. But the greater principle to apply here is from the Catechism 112, 113, 114, reading Scripture in a canonical context, which means going on a hunt, which means getting out again that reference Bible, tracking down the passages, turning to the catechism, all those sorts of um, um, activities will help us to go deeper into what I call Catholic scripture study, which is distinguished from just Bible study, right? We're doing so using all of our um, resources, the sacred scriptures, sacred tradition, our catechism, and also trusted teachers to help answer these questions. And I hope I've answered it a little bit. And thanks, Margaret, for that great question. I think that's it. God bless you all. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org 
or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.